I'm Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa DeSimone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on a particularly controversial corporate tax provision of President Biden's Made in America tax plan, a minimum tax on book profits. President Biden's Made in America tax plan aims to make American companies and workers more competitive. It would also generate new corporate tax revenue to fund a sustained increase in investments in infrastructure and research and provide support for manufacturing. In today's episode, we focus on the proposed minimum tax on book income for large corporations. It's one of the provisions intended to increase corporate tax revenue by addressing corporate tax avoidance. Hello, B. Hello, Lisa. This is a big day for us as tax accountants because we're going to be talking a lot about financial accounting. This is a day I have been waiting for my whole life, and I will do my best to stay calm. The provision we're talking about today targets corporations that the government perceives do not pay enough tax. Yep, the minimum tax on book profits is an effort to curb corporate tax avoidance. And now you've said the magic phrase, tax avoidance. So let's start with figuring out what exactly we mean when we say corporate tax avoidance? It's an excellent question. And to be honest, it wasn't a phrase I had ever heard until I became a PhD student. So from an academic perspective, I think the most widely accepted definition of corporate tax avoidance comes from two researchers, Michelle Hanlon and Shane Heitzman. And they define tax avoidance as anything a corporation does to reduce their tax liability. And one thing that's important to note here is that these concepts we're going to talk about today related to tax avoidance aren't unique to corporations. They actually apply to any taxpayer, even you or me. So after Hanlon and Heitzman defined tax avoidance in that way, some other researchers, Pete Lasowski, Leslie Robinson, and Andy Schmidt, talked about this idea of tax avoidance existing on a continuum. So on their continuum, there are completely legal totally acceptable things that companies can do to reduce their tax payments. Things that you would have no problem walking up to an IRS agent and saying, hey, I took this deduction or I claimed this credit. And then as you move across the continuum, you get into more aggressive gray area parts of the law, all the way to the point where we're talking about straight up illegal activities, things like tax shelters and tax fraud. And as you said, this continuum of tax avoidance exists for individuals too. And I think that might be helpful to some listeners to use some examples that they might be able to relate to. So if I donate a copy of my favorite book to my local library and claim a $5 deduction for the value of that book, that's probably fine. Now, if I try to claim that the value of the book that I just donated is $50 because it's my favorite book and has sentimental value, well, The IRS doesn't really care about my sentimental value, and I'm venturing into aggressive tax avoidance territory by overclaiming the value of that deduction. I'm still entitled to a deduction. That part's perfectly legal, but the IRS and I are not going to see eye to eye on what the amount of that deduction should be. If I try to claim a deduction without even donating the book because I can't bear to part with it, Now I'm all the way on the other end of the spectrum committing tax fraud. 
the point is, no matter what you call it, tax avoidance, tax abuse, harmful tax practices, corporations and all taxpayers really have economic incentives to lower their taxable income because doing so allows them to pay less tax and keep more cash in their own pockets. The minimum book tax addresses unique situations where a corporation reports little or even no taxable income, but somehow manages to report substantial profits to its shareholders. Yep, every year companies compute two different measures of income. One is taxable income, which we just said managers have an incentive to minimize in order to pay less tax. And the second is book income. That's what gets reported to stakeholders at the firm, including investors, creditors, et cetera. When it comes to book income, managers have an incentive to maximize it so that they can look good to their stakeholders like shareholders. So the taxable income and book income numbers can diverge substantially. And while that might sound pretty egregious on the face of it, there's actually really good legitimate reasons why book and taxable income differ in any given year. Absolutely. And that's because these two measures of income are computed using two entirely distinct sets of rules with entirely different objectives. So there's no reason to think that they're going to get to the same answer. The rules that govern book income, which in the U.S. we call GAAP, or Generally Accepted Accounting Principles, want managers to report information neutrally to shareholders so that it's useful to them in making their investment decisions. Now, sometimes the rules for book income actually err on the side of being a little bit conservative. And when GAAP ventures to be a little bit conservative, it's only with the intention of protecting shareholders from managers' optimism, which sometimes might be misplaced. Okay, so right away, you could see that this somewhat conservative approach to reporting income for book purposes, that's probably not the tack the government wants to take for tax purposes. Nope, no indeed. Because the tax rules of the Internal Revenue Code are trying to do three things, and it turns out that all of them are totally unrelated to protecting investors and other stakeholders in the firm. The first thing that our tax laws try to do is generate the revenue that we need to fund government spending on things like education, infrastructure, and defense. So you're entirely right. The tax rules tend to want companies, and all taxpayers to report higher income so that they can generate more revenues. Second, taxes can be used to redistribute wealth, whether from the poor to the rich, like during feudal times, or from the rich to the poor through social services. Third, and probably most relevant to what we're talking about today, taxes are a really, really important policy tool that governments can use to incentivize or disincentivize certain taxpayer behavior. So let's give some examples here. An example of incentivizing certain behaviors would be some of the tax provisions intended to stimulate investment, like accelerated depreciation. That's a big, long, fancy phrase for a provision that allows businesses to recover the cost of investments they make through tax deductions that they can claim against their taxable income, and they can do so more quickly than the actual useful life of an asset. So let's turn now to some examples of provisions intended to disincentivize certain behaviors. Uh, One example came at us in 2017 as a part of President Trump's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, or TCJA. It disallows a deduction for executive compensation above a million dollars, essentially providing a disincentive for firms to pay their executives more than that 
in light of a lot of increased public attention to excessive CEO pay and wealth inequality. And all of those great examples you just gave are examples of deductions. And deductions reduce the amount of taxable income that a taxpayer reports. There are also things called tax credits, and those tend to be more valuable than deductions dollar for dollar because they offer a direct reduction in a taxpayer's liability. So from a corporate perspective, the R&D credit is a popular example. It incentivizes increases in scientific research and new product development by subsidizing companies' expenditures on R&D-related activities. So the point here is that once you consider the special tax deductions that you talked about and these tax credits that I mentioned, each of which has their own goals to either incentivize or disincentivize certain behaviors, things get really complicated. And this is why it's more complex than just taking a company's book income and multiplying it by 21% to get an estimate of their federal tax liability. And that all makes sense. So let's go back to that idea of a continuum of tax avoidance, because even though there are really valid reasons that we just discussed for why book income and taxable income might diverge, or why a profitable company may pay no tax or even receive a tax refund. There also may be some more, shall we say, questionable reasons. For example, the minimum tax is described as, quote, a backstop against a new international tax regime. And this is getting at the fact that basically businesses that operate in more than one country are able to arrange their operations in such a way that they can have some discretion over where they report taxable income. And guess what? they tend to choose to report it more in low-tax countries than in places like the U.S. that has a relatively high tax rate. And so to bypass all of this profit shifting for tax purposes, what we can do is impose a tax on worldwide profits calculated using the financial accounting standards, but that number wouldn't reflect any of this tax-motivated profit shifting. So a minimum tax on book income may actually reduce some of the incentives to engage in profit shifting in the first place. All right. According to the plan, corporations can avoid tax, but, quote, workers pay taxes on their full salaries, end quote. And they're using that to motivate why we need a minimum tax to help eliminate that disparity. So question for you, B. I know this is one of your favorite things to talk about. Do you agree with that statement? I get the idea that they're going for here, the Biden team. Um, you know, trying to say that corporations have all of these loopholes that they can exploit and poor Joe and Jane worker are getting taxed on 100% of their compensation. So I get the point, A, for dramatic effect. I do think it's a little bit of an oversimplification, though, for a couple reasons. First, we know that we don't really pay tax on our full salary. We can also claim deductions and credits for things. You alluded to a deduction for charitable contributions. There's deductions for home mortgage interest. I get a child tax credit every year just because I have a seven-year-old running around. So it's not really fair to say that I pay tax on my full salary. And then second, there are things, there are benefits that I get for my job that I don't pay any tax on. Like I'm very fortunate enough that they pay for my health insurance premiums. They make contributions to my retirement account. Periodically they feed me and I don't have to pay tax on those types of things. So again, I get the point and the picture that the Biden administration is trying to draw with that reference and that comparison between companies and their workers. But I think when we're talking about complex things like taxes, sometimes it's better to not gloss over things so much. I completely agree with you that it's a bit of an oversimplification. I do take the point, though, that businesses have a lot more flexibility in the types of deductions and credits they can claim relative to individuals. 
Still, it's not super clear why taxing book income is the right way to overcome this difference, as opposed to say, I don't know, getting rid of some of these business deductions and credits or making it easier for individuals to claim them. Let's get into the specifics of this minimum tax. One thing that struck me is how narrow it is in its focus. Yes. It levies a minimum tax on book profits of 15%, less some benefit for credits, but only on companies that report net income of $2 billion or more. And Biden's team estimates that that would be about 200 companies a year, only 200 companies a year. So it's a very narrowly focused provision. And the plan suggests that only a subset of those 200 firms, only about 45, would actually owe something under this provision. And that sounds almost too targeted. I agree. I kind of feel like we wanted to call it the Amazon tax, or we wanted to say we're only going to tax large internet retailers whose names start with A and also have a Z, but we couldn't do that. So it, it does feel a little bit like Biden's team carefully constructed this tax to target the exact companies that we all think of as the bad guys from tax from a tax perspective. I think that's a great point, but now I'm a little confused over the rhetoric in the plan about how necessary this tax is. How can it be that a tax that's only paid by a few dozen firms, could, how could it right all these wrongs about profit shifting and inequality and businesses getting away with murder? It's an excellent question. And I have no answer. I have no answer either. What we can try to answer is who would pay this tax and why. We have to give a few disclaimers here. Everything we say is based off of public financial statements, and the bad thing about doing what we do is that these publicly available statements of a company's financial position don't provide a ton of detail about their tax avoidance, which is what we're interested in. So we're going to do our best, but we're making some assumptions based on these figures. What we did was we looked at public company profits for 2020, and we found 237 firms with pre-tax income in excess of $2 billion. So ding, 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 this is our first assumption. The proposal says the minimum tax would apply to companies with over $2 billion in net income, as in after-tax expense. And that seemed a little odd that Congress would want to tax a number that already has taxes taken out of it. So we went with pre-tax book income instead. The next thing that we did was we looked at these 237 companies' tax payments. Ding, ding, ding. This is caveat number two. No matter what any journalist will tell you, no one can observe how much tax a company pays to the IRS by looking at their financial statements. It's not a number that companies are required to disclose. Yep, we have to wait for somebody at the IRS to leak those tax returns to the public. But even though we can't see where companies pay their specific taxes, we do get an entire number, an aggregated number. And because this proposed minimum tax would allow a foreign tax credit, the number that we're looking at shouldn't be too far off. It's good enough for our back of the envelope math. So the first thing to note is that on average, if you look across all of these 237 companies, they reported tax payments equal to, wait for it, 21% of their pre-tax book income. 21%. That just happens to be exactly the current tax rate and higher than the 15% rate minimum tax on book income in the proposal that we're talking about. So that doesn't seem so bad. Nope, not so far. 
these companies on average don't really seem to be avoiding that much tax at all if we take their book profits as a starting point. In fact, only four of these companies reported receiving a tax refund, and only 74 report less than this 15% rate of tax on payments. So we're talking about a max of 74 companies possibly subject to this tax in 2020. Let's look at some of the possible targets. These are companies with some of the highest book profits reported to shareholders, but if we calculate their rate of tax paid on book income, that rate is less than the rate that would be imposed by the minimum tax on book income. All right, so who are these companies? Not terribly surprisingly, we see a few that start with an A, almost as if they could have written the provision for companies whose names start with an A. Starting with Apple, if we do a bit of that back of the envelope math we love so much, you see the big reason Apple pays low taxes is because of R&D credits. And the minimum book tax is still going to allow the company to claim these R&D credits against book income. So Apple, a company that the media loves to beat up as this aggressive tax avoider, they might not even be subject to this minimum book tax. And lo and behold, Amazon is another company that falls into this net. They reported $24 billion of book income last year, but only $1.7 billion of cash taxes paid. That's a rate of just over 7%. Now, the biggest reason Amazon pays below 15% is, in fact, their tax benefits from stock compensation, but they also benefit from tax credits, and they also benefit from accelerated depreciation. And these are the types of things that Congress wants to be able to use to be able to incentivize corporate behavior. So because Amazon does benefit from tax credits, which the minimum tax is going to allow, and accelerated depreciation, which the minimum tax is silent on right now, it's unclear to what extent Amazon would owe any of this minimum book tax once you factor in these credits and accelerated depreciation. And now is my favorite time of the show, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So Lisa, I am going to be very gracious here and let you take the lead on this, mostly because I'm struggling to see any good here. So gracious of you. I also have a really hard time seeing the good here. And we're not alone. I think the general sentiment among academic tax accountants like us is that using book income for tax purposes makes no sense. It's pretty bad. I mean, I I tried long and hard to think of some good here, and it turns out we can't even give Biden's team points for creativity and originality on this one. That's right. Congress already tried something similar back in 1986, and that grand provision lasted all of two years. So safe to say it wasn't exactly a rousing success 35 years ago when we were in elementary school. All right, then. To the bad it is. Awesome. I will start. First off, this book minimum tax is 15% of worldwide book income. And that confuses me because since the TCJA in 2018, our tax law says we're not going to tax foreign profits of U.S. multinationals unless you're talking about some excess profits deemed to have been shifted to low-tax countries. So taxing worldwide book income 
seems really inconsistent with this brand new territorial system that we just passed a couple years ago. Yeah, this is definitely a situation where the devil is in the details, because even if a tax on book profits sounds really appealing at first glance, it's this super effective way to curb the harmful tax avoidance of all these big bad corporations, it is really inconsistent with some of the overarching tax policy goals that we already have in place. And not only that, we've already had several situations over the years where book and taxable income have gotten closer together. And the general consensus from accounting researchers is that when book tax conformity increases, when these two measures of income become more closely aligned, book income becomes less useful to investors. So using book income for tax purposes just ends up ruining book income. I totally agree. And it goes the other way, too. Assessing a tax on book income also kind of ruins taxable income in the sense that it hampers Congress's ability to use the tax code to incentivize behavior. Which leaves us with the ugly. So on top of all of the many bad things that we have talked about so far, like making the tax law more complicated, moving away from some of our guiding tax principles, I have to ask, is all of this cost worth it? And that's where it truly is ugly because the expected revenue estimates are only about $148 billion of tax revenues expected to be raised over 10 years. Government's saying they're going to stick it to big business, but when you look at it, there's not a whole lot of there there. And will it even work? The other thing that we haven't even talked about today is the idea of non-GAAP income. So companies are increasingly making adjustments to their audited book income or relying on these things called key performance indicators that really don't have a whole lot to do with book income at all to report their performance to shareholders. So the bottom line is GAAP income, which this minimum tax is based off of, is becoming less important over time to investors. And if it's less important to investors, it's gonna become less important to managers. So what this means is that managers might be very willing to tank GAAP income to lower their minimum book tax while still finding a way to paint that rosy picture for shareholders through either non-GAAP metrics or these KPIs. Managers are creative. And the truth is they might not even have to tank it all that much. Of those 237 companies we talked about, 35 of them were not really that far over the $2 billion threshold. Managers will find a way to eat their cake and have it too. I think it's safe to say we both agree. If President Biden doesn't like that corporations with book profits have low taxable income, well, Congress should fix the way we calculate taxable income. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm Lisa DeSimone. And I'm Bridget Stomberg. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.